Section 57 of Jean Christophe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Jean Christophe, Volume 1, by Romain Roland, translated by Gilbert Canaan. Revolt 3, Part 4. At the sight of them, a big man threw himself out of the door of a carriage and roared the names of Schultz and Kuntz together with all their titles and qualities, and he waved his arms like a madman. Schultz and Kuntz shouted in reply, and also waved their arms. They rushed to the big man's compartment, and he ran to meet them, jostling the people on the platform. Christophe was amazed and ran after them, asking, "'What is it?' and the others shouted exultantly, "'It is Patpietschmidt!' The name did not convey much to him. He had forgotten the toasts at dinner." Patpietschmidt in the carriage and Schultz and Kuntz on the step were making a deafening noise. They were marveling at their encounter. They climbed into the train as it was going. Schultz introduced Christoph. Patpietschmidt bowed as stiff as a poker and his features lost all expression. Then, when the formalities were over, he caught hold of Christoph's hand and shook it five or six times, as though he were trying to pull his arm out, and then began to shout again. Christophe was able to make out that he thanked God and his stars for the extraordinary meeting. That did not keep him from slapping his thigh a moment later and crying out upon the misfortune of having had to go away. He, who never went away, just when the Herr Kappelmeister was coming. Schultz's telegram had only reached him that morning an hour after the train went. He was asleep when it arrived, and they had not thought it worth while to wake him. He had stormed at the hotel people all morning. He was still storming. He had sent his patients away, cut his business appointments, and taken the first train in his haste to return. But the infernal train had missed the connection on the main line. Patpietschmidt had had to wait three hours at a station. He had exhausted all the expletives in his vocabulary, and fully twenty times had narrated his misadventures to other travellers who were also waiting, and a porter at the station. At last he had started again. He was fearful of arriving too late, but thank God, thank God! He took Christophe's hands again and crushed them in his vast paws with their hairy fingers. He was fabulously stout and tall in proportion. He had a square head, close-cut red hair, a clean-shaven pockmarked face, big eyes, large nose, thin lips, a double chin, a short neck, a monstrously wide back, a stomach like a barrel, arms thrust out by his body, enormous feet and hands, a gigantic mass of flesh, deformed by excess in eating and drinking, one of those human tobacco jars that one sees sometimes rolling along the streets in the towns of Bavaria, which keep the secret of that race of men that is produced by a system of gorging similar to that of the Strasbourg geese. He listened with joy and warmth, like a pot of butter, and with his two hands on his outstretched knees, or on those of his neighbors, he never stopped talking, hurling consonants into the air like a catapult, and making them roll along. Occasionally he would have a fit of laughing which made him shake all over. He would throw back his head, open his mouth, snorting, gurgling, choking. His laughter would infect Schultz and Kuntz, and when it was over, they would look at Christoph as they dried their eyes. They seemed to be asking him, Hein, and what do you say? Christoph said nothing. He thought fearfully. And this monster sings my music? They went home with Schultz. 
Christoph hoped to avoid Pat Pietschmidt's singing and made no advances in spite of Pat Pietschmidt's hints. He was itching to be heard, but Schultz and Kunz were too intent on showing their friend off. Christoph had to submit. He sat at the piano rather ungraciously. He thought, My good man, my good man, you don't know what is in store for you. Have a care. I will spare you nothing. He thought that he would hurt Schultz, and he was angry at that. But he was none the less determined to hurt him rather than have this Falstaff murdering his music. He was spared the pain of hurting his old friend. The fat man had an admirable voice. At the first bars, Christophe gave a start of surprise. Schultz, who never took his eyes off him, trembled. He thought that Christophe was dissatisfied, and he was only reassured when he saw his face grow brighter and brighter as he went on playing. He was lit up by the reflection of Christophe's delight. And when the song was finished, and Christophe turned round and declared that he had never heard any of his songs sung so well, Schultz found a joy in all, sweeter and greater than Christophe's in his satisfaction, sweeter and greater than Patpietschmitz in his triumph, for they had only their own pleasure, and Schultz had that of his two friends. They went on with the music. Christophe cried aloud. He could not understand how so ponderous and common a creature could succeed in reading the idea of his leader. No doubt there were not exactly all the shades of meaning, but there was the impulse and the passion which he had never quite succeeded in imparting to professional singers. He looked at Patpietschmidt and wondered, does he really feel that? But he could not see in his eyes any other light than that of satisfied vanity. Some unconscious force stirred in that solid flesh. The blind passion was like an army fighting without knowing against whom or why. The spirit of the leader took possession of it, and it obeyed gladly, for it had need of action, and left to itself it never would have known how. Christophe fancied that on the day of the creation the great sculptor did not take very much trouble to put in order the scattered members of his rough-hewn creatures, and that he had adjusted them anyhow without bothering to find out whether they were suited to each other, and so everyone was made up of all sorts of pieces, and one man was scattered among five or six different men, his brain was with one, his heart with another, and the body belonging to his soul with yet another. The instrument was on one side, the performer on the other. Certain creatures remained like wonderful violins, forever shut up in their cases, for want of anyone with the art to play them. And those who were fit to play them were found all their lives to put up with wretched scraping fiddles. He had all the more reason for thinking so, as he was furious with himself for never having been able properly to sing a page of music. He had an untuned voice and could never hear himself without disgust. However, intoxicated by his success, Patpietschmidt began to put expression into Christoph's leader. That is to say, he substituted his own for Christoph's. Naturally, he did not think that the music gained by the change, and he grew gloomy. Schultz saw it. His lack of the critical faculty and his admiration for his friends would not have allowed him of his own accord to set it down to Patpietschmidt's bad taste. But his affection for Christophe made him perceptive of the young man's finest shades of thought. He was no longer in himself. He was in Christophe. And he too suffered from Patpietschmidt's affectations. He tried hard to stop his going down that perilous slope. 
It was not easy to silence Potpiechmit. Schultz found it enormously difficult, when the singer had exhausted Christoph's repertory, to keep him from breaking out into the lucubrations of mediocre compositions at the mention of whose names Christoph curled up and bristled like a porcupine. Fortunately, the announcement of supper muzzled Potpiechmit. Another field for his valor was opened for him. He had no rival there, and Christophe, who was a little weary with his exploits in the afternoon, made no attempt to vie with him. It was getting late. They sat round the table, and the three friends watched Christophe. They drank in his words. It seemed very strange to Christophe to find himself in the remote little town among these old men, whom he had never seen until that day, and to be more intimate with them than if they had been his relations. He thought how fine it would be for an artist if he could know of the unknown friends whom his ideas find in the world, how gladdened his heart would be, and how fortified he would be in his strength. But he is rarely that. Everyone lives and dies alone, fearing to say what he feels the more he feels and the more he needs to express it. Vulgar flatterers have no difficulty in speaking. Those who love most have to force their lips open to say that they love, and so he must be grateful indeed to those who dare to speak. They are unconsciously collaborators with the artist. Christoph was filled with gratitude for old Schultz. He did not confound him with his two friends. He felt that he was the soul of the little group. The others were only reflections of that living fire of goodness and love. The friendship that Kunz and Potpiechmit had for him was very different. Kunz was selfish. Music gave him a comfortable satisfaction, like a fat cat when it is stroked. Potpiechmit found in it the pleasure of tickled vanity and physical exercise. Neither of them troubled to understand him. But Schultz absolutely forgot himself. He loved. It was late. The two friends went away in the night. Christoph was left alone with Schultz. He said, now I will play for you alone. He sat at the piano and played, as he knew how to play when he had someone dear to him by his side. He played his latest compositions. The old man was in ecstasies. He sat near Christophe and never took his eyes from him and held his breath. In the goodness of his heart, he was incapable of keeping the smallest happiness to himself, and in spite of himself he said, Ah, what a pity Kunz is not here! That irritated Christophe a little. An hour passed. Christophe was still playing. They had not exchanged a word. When Christophe had finished, neither spoke a word. There was silence. The house, the street, was asleep. Christophe turned and saw that the old man was weeping. He got up and went and embraced him. They talked in whispers in the stillness of the night. The clock ticked dully in the next room. Schultz talked in a whisper with his hands clasped and leaning forward, he was telling Christophe, in answer to his questions, about his life and his sorrow. At every turn he was ashamed of complaining and had to say, I am wrong. I have no right to complain. Everybody has been very good to me. And indeed he was not complaining. It was only an involuntary melancholy emanating from the dull story of his lonely life. At the most sorrowful moments he wove into it professions of faith, vaguely idealistic and very sentimental, which amazed Christophe, though it would have been too cruel to contradict him. At bottom there was in Schultz not so much a firm belief as a passionate desire to believe, 
an uncertain hope to which he clung as to a buoy. He sought the confirmation of it in Christoph's eyes. Christoph understood the appeal in the eyes of his friend, who clung to him with touching confidence, imploring him and dictating his answer. Then he spoke of the calm faith or strength, sure of itself, words which the old man was expecting, and they comforted him. The old man and the young had forgotten the years that lay between them. They were near each other, like brothers of the same age, loving and helping each other. The weaker sought the support of the stronger. The old man took refuge in the young man's soul. They parted after midnight. Christophe had to get up early to catch the train by which he had come, and so he did not loiter as he undressed. The old man had prepared his guest's room as though for a visit of several months. He had put a bowl of roses on the table and a branch of laurel. He had put fresh blotting paper on the bureau. During the morning he had had an upright piano carried up. On the shelf by the bed he had placed books chosen from among his most precious and beloved. There was no detail that he had not lovingly thought out, but it was a waste of trouble. Christophe saw nothing. He flung himself on his bed and went sound asleep at once. Schultz could not sleep. He was pondering the joy that he had had and the sorrow he must have at the departure of his friend. He was turning over in his mind the words that had been spoken. He was thinking that his dear Christophe was sleeping near him on the other side of the wall against which his bed lay. He was worn out, stiff all over, depressed. He felt that he had caught cold during the walk and that he was going to have a relapse. But he had only one thought. If only I can hold out until he has gone. And he was fearful of having a fit of coughing and waking Christophe. He was full of gratitude to God and began to compose verses to the song of old Simeon. Nunca dimitis. He got up in a sweat to write the verses down and sat at his desk until he had carefully copied them out with an affectionate dedication and his signature and the date and hour. Then he lay down again with a shiver and could not get warm all night. Dawn came. Schultz thought regretfully of the dawn of the day before, but he was angry with himself for spoiling with such thoughts the few minutes of happiness left to him. He knew that on the morrow he would regret the time fleeting then, and he tried not to waste any of it. He listened, eager for the least sound in the next room. But Christophe did not stir. He lay still just as he had gone to bed. He had not moved. Half-past six rang, and he still slept. Nothing would have been easier than to make him miss the train, and doubtless he would have taken it with a laugh. But the old man was too scrupulous to use a friend so without his consent. In vain did he say to himself, It will not be my fault. I could not help it. It will be enough to say nothing. And if he does not wake in time, I shall have another whole day with him. He answered himself, No, I have no right. And he thought it his duty to go and wake him. He knocked at the door. Christophe did not hear at first. He had to knock again. That made the old man's heart thump as he thought, Ah, how well he sleeps! He would stay like that till midday. At last Christophe replied gaily through the partition. When he learned the time, he cried out. He was heard bustling about his room, noisily dressing himself, singing scraps of melody, while he chattered with Schultz through the wall and cracked jokes while the old man laughed in spite of his sorrow. The door opened. Christophe appeared, fresh, rested, and happy. 
He had no thought of the pain he was causing. In reality, there was no hurry for him to go. It would have cost him nothing to stay a few days longer, and it would have given Schultz so much pleasure. But Christoph could not know that. Besides, although he was very fond of the old man, he was glad to go. He was worn out by the day of perpetual conversation by these people who clung to him in desperate fondness. And then he was young. He thought there would be plenty of time to meet again. He was not going to the other ends of the earth. The old man knew that he would soon be much farther than the other ends of the earth, and he looked at Christoph for all eternity. In spite of his extreme weariness, he took him to the station. A fine cold rain was falling noiselessly. At the station, when he opened his purse, Christoph found that he had not enough money to buy his ticket home. He knew that Schultz would gladly lend him the money, but he would not ask him for it. Why? Why deny those who love you the opportunity, the happiness of doing you a service? He would not out of discretion, perhaps out of vanity. He took a ticket for a station on the way, saying that he would do the rest of the journey on foot. The time for leaving came. They embraced on the footboard of the carriage. Schultz slipped the poem he had written during the night into Christoph's hand. He stayed on the platform below the compartment. They had nothing more to say to each other, as usual when goodbyes are too long drawn out, but Schultz's eyes went on speaking. They never left Christoph's face until the train went. The carriage disappeared round a curve. Schultz was left alone. He went back by the muddy path. He dragged along. Suddenly he felt all his weariness, the cold, the melancholy of the rainy day. He was hardly able to reach home and to go upstairs again. Hardly had he reached his room than he was seized with an attack of asthma and coughing. Salome came to his aid. Through his involuntary groans he said, "'What luck! What luck that I was prepared for it!' He felt very ill. He went to bed. Salome fetched the doctor. In bed he became as limp as a rag. He could not move. Only his breast was heaving and panting like a million billows. His head was heavy and feverish. He spent the whole day in living through the day before, minute by minute. He tormented himself, and then was angry with himself for complaining after so much happiness. With his hands clasped and his heart big with love, he thanked God. End of section 57